0: Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aaron. Today we begin a two-part series called Popular, Populist. In today's episode, we'll be exploring all facets of Vladimir Putin's popularity, and what that popularity even means. And next episode, we'll be tackling a tough question. Is Vladimir Putin a populist? Joining us today is Yana Garachovskaya. Yana researches and writes about Russian domestic politics, Her work has been published in Democratization, Russian Politics, Post-Soviet Affairs, Russian Analytical Digest, and the Ponar's Policy Memo Series, among others. So, let's dive in. Yana, so great to have you on the podcast.
1: Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
0: So we have a very interesting day in Russian politics, to say the least. Uh, Yesterday saw the referendum results come down that could theoretically uh, keep Putin in power for life until 2036. Uh, So to dive right in here, I want to talk about the results. We had 78 percent voted or theoretically voted yes for on the referendum uh, with 68 percent turnout. So, yeah, to start things, uh, if you're Putin this morning, are you happy with that result?
1: Well, I'm sure he's very happy with the result. I'm surprised by the result, not by the fact that it's a positive outcome, that it's a majority yes vote, but by the fact that the the actual result is so much higher than any of the polling suggested uh, it would be. I mean, Levada, uh, the Russia's independent pollster, was doing polling in May and June, and they were saying... Um, about 55% of people polled were were uh, planning to vote yes um, with about a 45% of people um, asked uh, reporting that they intended to vote. So, you know, to go from 45% planning to vote to a 68% actual turnout um, and from a 55% intended yes vote to a 78% uh, yes vote, those, that's quite a huge discrepancy. So... I mean, they went above and beyond to uh, to really deliver this overwhelming endorsement of these amendments, which I find surprising. I thought they would they would sort of steer much closer to what the the pre vote polling said.
0: Yeah, to say the least. Uh, I think successful as far as the use of administrative resources, as they're called, uh, for for listeners less in the loop, since I I use some jargon um, that just means using you know political economic levers to turn people out to secure the desired results. And I think the results in this case were very much desired. Um, but let's uh, turn to the, kind of the meat and potatoes of this episode. Uh, this is the first part of a two part series, Popular Populist. And today we're talking all about Putin's popularity. So to play devil's advocate from the very get go here, uh, isn't Putin an autocrat? Why would popularity matter at all and in a liberal system?
1: Yeah, so Putin is definitely an autocrat, but that just means that he heads a system that is not representative of people's wishes. Um, Being an autocrat is not the same as being a dictator. And autocrats have to make a calculus about how they intend to rule, because you either rule with people's support, or you rule using repressive measures. So you either need to um use security services the police the military to force people to obey or you have to actually convince a portion of the population um, to support you and then you can use as you mentioned administrative resources uh economic incentives other things to kind of top up that support. So popularity is still important, even when you're not in a democratic system. It's just that popularity doesn't mean the same thing when we're talking about authoritarian systems versus democratic systems.
0: Got it. Makes sense. Um, So I guess then kind of taking this a step further, um, we're trying to understand in this episode specifically, is Putin popular and what popularity might mean, especially in a system that's not it's uh, I saw it referred to this morning as a soft authoritarian system or a a loose democratic system. I guess there's a lot of a lot of different terms you could use. But let's talk about the basis, whether or not you agree with everything Putin does. He's held power for 20 years. So there is some fundamental base of support. I think it's safe to say. So let's talk about uh, kind of where where that support is based on what what makes him popular with that kind of amorphous definition of popularity for now, but, you know, how was he held on so long?
1: Yeah, so I'm not a huge fan of the different kind of, they used to be called um, democracy with adjectives, and now I guess it's authoritarianism with adjectives, right? These, all these kind of ways of describing this particular regime. Um, you know, I think it's enough to say that Russia is an authoritarian regime you can say electoralism, which means that it still uh, has elections as the primary vehicle for obtaining and and maintaining political power, but it has authoritarian tendencies or strategies within its political system. Um, So I think Putin, as you say... Is genuinely popular, um, and we can see that his popularity over time fluctuates, uh, right? So he had the the famous Crimea bounce after the annexation of Crimea. His popularity really skyrocketed. Before that, then, though, in twenty eleven, you know, twenty twelve, kind of on the wave of the the uh, democratic protests, his popularity was 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 lower. It was not very low, but it was lower. It was in the sixties, um, kind of closer to the territory it is now. And the Kremlin is actually famously ratings-obsessed. So the Kremlin uses polling agencies and um, sociological studies to actually study what people um, want and how they feel about the government. So it's not as if Putin or the Kremlin are kind of ruling from the top without any uh, regard for what people want. And we see them um, kind of operationalize or use uh, certain parts of society to increase their popularity. So we saw around Crimea, and before that, we saw kind of nationalism, and like the Cossacks and all of these movements that already existed in Russian society. They weren't invented by the Kremlin, they existed, but they were sort of on the margins. And then the Kremlin really engaged with them. And then after uh, kind of the the conflict in eastern Ukraine really became a frozen conflict, and you saw, um, you know, the Kremlin pull back from the whole idea of Nova Russia and this greater kind of Russian identity, then they started uh, really going after these nationalists in Russia, right? They were prosecuted in extremist cases, and um, that ideology was abandoned. The same thing with, you know, traditional family values. Russia is, when you look at world value surveys, Russia is no more homophobic or kind of, you know, uh, religious than a lot of other Eastern European countries, but this ideology has been picked up by the Kremlin, and then kind of uh, promoted, and so they they use parts of existing tendencies and ideas in society and maintain uh, popular support that way. I mean, it's not it's not that different from what you see politicians in the West do, right? Um, kind of latch onto ideas or popular sentiments in society and use them in their political platforms. And of course, I mean, in a broader story. The economic recovery of the 2000s, the oil prices, all of those things helped Putin in his first two terms as president to be genuinely popular. It's just the question of the difference between how actually how popular he is and then the administrative resources. Um, you know, the question is how big of a margin there is between those two things, between the, the popularity we actually see in his real
0: yeah. So I guess a, a relevant question here. What what explains the particular this is something we've covered in in BMB, I think since the, the get go. But the Kremlin's pretty intense focus on optics specifically, there's a pretty strong sensitivity about the way things look and securing the right numbers. I mean, the fact that, you know, an approval rating in, in the 60th, you know, in the 60 percentile, uh, that's by by. All democratic standards, a very high, very high rating. So, what what drives that sensitivity towards towards numbers and you know, public sentiment, especially given that it's a uh, you know democracy light, we could call it.
1: Yeah. So, what drives it is the fact that in a, in a democratic system, your popularity rating is pretty closely tied to your reelection prospects. Right. When a president uh, in a democratic system, a presidential system, heads into a reelection season, if his ratings or chances of being reelected um, are, you know, diminished or uh, slim. In Russia, because elections are not actually representative of, of public opinion because they are manipulated, and they're manipulated. We should remember locally and regionally. So, is there? This is there is an idea about Russia that everything is controlled from the from the top down, and almost mechanically controlled, sort of personally controlled. Um, but that's not quite true. What the Kremlin does is send signals from the top about results and outcomes they would wish to see, and they have people in the regions and locally working to accomplish those results. But they don't know exactly what results they're aiming for, sort of precisely. And so sometimes we have. Um, kind of bending the stick too far when you see, you know, results from Chechnya or somewhere else with like 99% turnout and 85% support, something like that. So the Kremlin actually doesn't want those kinds of results, right? They want to see significant support, but sometimes, or could be perceived as legitimate, right? And so when you have uh, this, you know, the idea that their ratings obsess, it's because they don't actually get to see their genuine support in elections, like elections not reflective. The media is also controlled, right? So when you're looking at alternative kind of voices and criticisms, you don't find that in the media. So the Kremlin actually has very few touchstones to see what people want. And they are concerned that that they maintain a certain level of support, because again, as I said before, if you don't have genuine support, at least in some part of the population, maybe not the majority, you're going to have to use repressive force. that's costly, it's unpopular. It has a lot of different consequences. And most autocrats would would want to avoid that.
0: Got it. So we talked about briefly, but I want to kind of uh, circle back here to the use of different you know, political movements, different ideas in society as a as a tool to to build power, sort of different social contracts that have existed over. Putin's, what, 1.0? Are we on Putin 4.0 by now, I guess? Um, But regardless of the various iterations of Putinism, can we walk through, I think for listeners, it would be helpful to kind of understand how the kind of political organizational principles have changed. What are the ideas that have been harped on and where does that leave us now? We're still kind of, you mentioned kind of conservative social framework um, that was baked into the Constitution now as a result of this referendum. Uh, But yeah, where where do we stand now and where have we come from?
1: Right. So I think one of the things we haven't touched on yet, which is important and something that people may not think about when they're looking at popularity ratings for Putin, is that there are, um, practically speaking no alternatives to him. And sometimes that's kind of said in the Russian context, like a joke, you know, Putin is Russia's Putin, there's no one without, you know, there's nothing without him, he's the entire system. And we kind of came close to that in his, in the interview he just gave last week, where he sort of said, you know, let's not look for alternatives, let's not look for successors, let's, you know, let's do the job of government, suggesting that, um, you know, there's no one better than him in sort of uh, doing this job. But we arrived at this place really over the course of 20 years. It may seem now like this was inevitable, but that really wasn't the case, right? He spent his first two terms, so really Putin's first two terms, the first decade of the 2000s was devoted to building the power vertical, which is a system where everyone reports to their immediate superior and the system is centralized in Moscow, all decision-making is centralized in Moscow. So he built that, this was, uh, overcoming kind of the chaotic decentralization that Yeltsin had really um, had established by default because Russia was not in a place in the 19, you know, late 1990s to be any other way. Um, so building the power vertical, then, uh, and in the process, eliminating regional, elite, uh, regional elites that could be any kind of um, opponents or any kind of competition, again, the regional elites were a problem for Yeltsin in his time. Then we saw the emergence of United Russia, right? You needed this vehicle of power, this political party. Um, And then you saw a system kind of coalesce, a political party system coalesce around United Russia. So you had United Russia, then you had the systemic opposition, which were the only political parties allowed to um, take part in elections and allowed to be elected to the the federal and the regional um, parliaments. And then you have the next section, which is sort of the mid era, right? You have the system kind of comes together then Putin faces the constitutional term limit issue. So he steps back. Then he comes back and we see um, a problem emerge immediately, right? We have the 2011-2012 protests because all of a sudden we see that the system is um, lacking legitimacy, right? Putin all of a sudden comes back and it's as if they had this plan all along, which they probably, I mean, we don't know whether or not Medvedev had their kind of um, their deal all along that Putin was going to come back, but all of a sudden pe- people feel disappointed. They feel like the system actually isn't representative, it's not legitimate. And then almost very closely following that, we have Crimea. So we have the the focus of the legitimacy of the system shift to these foreign policy accomplishments, right? Russia's t- tougher stance on the international... Um, you know, internationally, we have the the benefit of Crimea, and then we have that slowly fall off. And we see the Kremlin searching for other things to base their legitimacy on. And then we have, you know, the the West is the Great App, all the foreign anti, you know, foreign NGO laws, the traditional family values. So the system has been created where there is a power vertical, Putin is at the top in the center, there are no political alternatives to him, because the political framework has been made up in a way where all alternatives look um, just incapable because he hasn't he hasn't allowed any competition to take place around himself or really in the political system. And then we have these ways of different kinds of ideologies that the Kremlin is looking for as a basis for legitimacy because competition isn't a basis for legitimacy anymore. I mean, that's been sort of, the slate has been wiped clean. Um, And the problem happens, you know, when we see downshifts in his, I mean, his popularity has been really declining since the Crimea bounce has been declining because they they have um, had to take unpopular decisions, policy decisions. I mean, the pension reform of 2018 was highly unpopular and Putin had to actually come out publicly, which was surprising. I mean, it's one of the only times he's come out and defended an unpopular political decision. Um, so the government is still forced to make these sorts of decisions that will make people unhappy. And then the question is, like, where do you where can you scrounge up more popularity once you make those decisions?
0: So relevant question, kind of the flip side of the basis for Putin's popularity. But uh, I think it would also be valuable to talk through. Uh, the threats that have emerged to his popularity and the kind of factors that have hurt him. And an example I like to I like to bring up dating very, very uh, early in the Putin administration was the the Kursk disaster when the submarine sank. Putin very famously publicly kind of bundled or not bundled, bungled the uh, bungled. The response came across as very kind of cardboard, wooden, didn't express the kind of compassion that a leader would needed to. And uh, early in his administration suffered a, 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 a downtick in his in his approval. So there's certainly been episodes where this has happened, um, but summarizing it, kind of where where has Putin struggled as far as, as building and maintaining legitimacy through popularity?
1: Yeah, so he's not great at crisis management. And we saw that again during the like the, the ongoing pandemic, right? He does not see himself, despite the fact that he has created a system which is very personalized, in which he is sort of the decision maker and the problem solver, right? We have these, these uh, you know, three or four hour press conferences that he has, the call-in show, and then he personally will address some like village in Siberia or something like that. Despite the fact that he has that image, when there is an actual crisis, he's not he's not great about it. He um, so the curse you know early on the curse disaster was an example of that. He waited a long time to handle to, to kind of address it publicly. Then he had the disastrous meeting with the relatives where you know he kind of. Implied that you should just accept this as the fate of, of um, military or Navy personnel in Russia. You know, and going forward, the Beslan uh, hostage taking, he wasn't great about that either. He was slightly better in that he addressed it sort of faster, but um, he was not, uh, he didn't take the role of, of grieving with families, of being sort of the, you know, emotional kind of uh, leader of a nation. Um, and we, we see that his response is uh, more about being strong and taking action, not being kind of um, engaged with people's emotions in, around, in crisis. The other thing that he often does is um, delegate responsibility and more often blame for disasters to regional elites, right? Regional elites are now in, you know, so there was a period of time. Now governors are elected, this happened in 2012, but there was a period of time where governors were Right, but, and this was in direct response to, well, the logic was that because of Baslan, they needed to be appointed, but really this was a way of centralizing power. And so for a long period of time, um, regional elites, governors were appointed, which means they were dependent on the Kremlin and they weren't um, you know, accountable to the population of the region. Now they are being elected, but there's still the system of their kind of political local machines have been had been totally destroyed over that course of appointments. And so now they're still dependent on the Kremlin. And so they answer kind of to the top. They don't answer downward to the constituents. Um, and what Putin has been doing over time is that he blames regional elites for any kind of failures. We saw this with the forest fires. We saw you know, the this again and again and again. And he delegates responsibility, authority, and blame downward, and then is able to kind of stay above the fray. I would say that with the pandemic, it seems like it's not working as well anymore. We kind of also saw this with the pension reforms. The pension reforms were introduced in the summer of 2018, right after they were introduced, right after Putin was re-elected. But they really, the protests around them started in the summer, and then we saw governors voted out. United Russia governors voted out for the first time ever, based on this on this um, protest vote, because people can't vote out Putin, so they're voting out these other kind of his stands stand-ins in the region. So I think that's a major hurdle to his you know, popularity, maintaining his popularity, this uh, strategy of offloading blame to the region's regional elites may not be, you know, it's not a kind of forever strategy. Um, and, you know, the economic, worsening economic situation, which is now kind of escalated with the pandemic globally, um, will certainly hurt Putin because a lot of his strategy in maintaining support is really giving handouts, sort of economic handouts um, to people. Uh, but also taking taking credit for uh, an improving economic situation or at least being able to say, look, we have sanctions, we have, you know, the oil prices uh, prices falling, but at least we have Crimea. And again, that seems to be wearing off. Um, and there's not, you know, there's not a second Crimea. Like, I think people kind of fear what would happen to Russia's neighbors if Putin was looking for another popularity bounce. But I think the reality is there is no second Crimea that would work that way in Russia.
0: So let's actually related to kind of the ability to to bounce popularity. Uh, we see the economy has been essentially declining or stagnant. Uh, although the Russian central bank they uh, they like to say it's positive stagnation, slight <laughs> slight growth. Um, yeah. I don't know if a lot of you know average Russians see it that way. Um. But let's talk about where Putin could derive more popularity over this next term through up to possibly including 2036. Um, so we have the economy maybe not very dependable, at least for the next couple of years, and with demographic pressures that may be a continued kind of thorn in his side. We have the uh, you know, patriotism, military strength, maybe limits there. Also wanted to float you know, Putin's ability to be cool Um, Again, thinking back really early in his term, some of the language he used in describing Chechen extremists kind of had a a swagger to him that, well, he's not as young as he was then. Um, So does he, can we walk through the the, the avenues he could have to to get his popularity to a better place, if that's possible at all?
1: Yeah, so I think that the Uh, cult of personality route is probably not available to Putin. I mean, you know, the kitschy stuff from a decade ago around, you know, um, videos like a man like Putin and shirtless photos of him in Siberia and things like that, or, you know, his kind of street language to address uh, Chechen terrorists. Um, Those were, I'm not sure those were part of, like, a cohesive strategy. He really hasn't Um, built the kind of cult of personality that we see in maybe Central Asian countries. He hasn't invested a great deal of time and effort um, or, you know, media pressure to kind of build that. And I'm not sure Russians are, I mean, it's hard to say, but I'm not sure Russians are up for that either. I'm not sure that would be kind of a popular uh, move, especially with Younger Russians, or or you know maybe not young, even younger Russians, but middle-aged Russians. So anyone that's not a pensioner, essentially. So I'm not sure about that route. Um, in terms of popularity, I think you know, taking opportunities to be an influential actor in the Middle East with foreign policy might be a way to kind of. I mean, that's still a big foreign policy accomplishments. are still a big part of Putin is bring people and also I think the other thing is that we have to consider what he's trying to get out of his rule too right I mean yes obviously he wants to stay in power that's the ultimate I mean this is something that that is similar across democracies and autocracies. Um, people in political power may have other goals, but one of their goals is maintaining their political power, right? People want to get reelected. People want to get reappointed. They want to stay in power to accomplish whatever other goals. So obviously one of Putin's goals is to stay in power. But another one I think realistically is that he is building a foreign policy legacy. There are accomplishments that he wants to um, kind of secure. and, And rebuilding Russia's stature on the world stage has been a pretty obvious and primary um, goal of his for a long time, you know, starting way back when he made his famous Munich speech, right, about how Russia has been disrespected and kind of marginalized with NATO and the EU and things like that. So I think he's going to keep going with foreign policy, or what he views as accomplishments. Um, I think, you know, um, the job of selling those accomplishments to people will become harder over time. Um, and I'm not sure kind of the avenues for an economic recovery. I mean, the, the oil, you know, deal, kind of the double whammy of the pandemic and then the, the crash in the oil prices that happened earlier in the year was a big miscalculation. It seemed like strategic miscalculation on the, on the part of the Kremlin. And so c- clearly they're trying to um, improve the economy where they can. Uh, but uh, to, to what degree they're capable of doing that is also um, up in the air, right? I mean, he, now they're getting rid of the flat tax. I mean, there's things they can do, but you know, one of the biggest problems is that there's all these sanctions and also that the climate of kind of corruption inhibits foreign, foreign investment, which is, which is a serious problem for Russia as well. But it's, so one of the questions that I've been thinking about as this discussion about popularity and voting and all this um, takes place. Is the degree to which popularity really matters? I mean, yes, it matters in the sense that they don't want to use repressive tools. But the the reality is that Putin himself is not facing an election anytime soon. United Russia might be facing elections. I mean, obviously, there's regional elections every year. There will be a parliamentary a Duma election soon. Um, but there's ways of accomplishing the results that you want in those elections. We just saw some of them in operation during this last week of voting in the referendum. Um, so there is uh, i think a lot of wiggle room available to putin in his in his kind of po- maintaining his popularity and um the degree to which that's important, if what you really want to want to examine is the durability of the regime, which i don't think hinges on his popularity
0: so speaking of regime durability, that's about as good a segue as uh we could have possibly <laughs> had here um Russia, unleashed in its own popular imagination or the national ideal, uh, talks about itself as the third Rome, and I think very interesting, especially now, because the Roman Empire, for uh, all of its strengths and you know endurance as a as a as a political unit, uh, never figured out succession. Uh, it caused a lot of bloodshed, a lot of difficulty. Um, it, there was never an established system. They did it sometimes, uh, sometimes by, by lineage, uh, by dynasty, but yeah, never an institutionalized way of handing off power. So I wanted to ask, especially since Putin may now stay another 16 years, although that, that seems like a lot, um, to what extent does succession and you know, lasting legitimacy uh, play in here to, to his calculation?
1: Yes, I think that in his, as I said before, I think in his calculation, um, he is building himself a legacy based on foreign co- policy accomplishments. I think that's the primary goal of his, at least now in the last, I would say, probably in the last maybe five to ten years, he's finished. He, it seems to me he is wholeheartedly disinterested in domestic policies. He. Um, You know, doesn't take a lot of initiatives. He only comes out and sort of defends them as he did with the pension reform when they seem, when they are in dire need. First of all, the the pension system really, really needed to be reformed and has needed to be reformed for a long time. And so Putin comes out in in favor of these reforms uh, that are absolutely needed, but he's not taking... Uh, sort of great initiatives, you know, um, to kind of build new things in the country or kind of build new um, social programs, policies. You know, he keeps claiming the capital idea, which you know, it's internationally we've seen it's you can't you can't pay women to have children. It just it won't it won't work as a a, dem- a demographic policy. So in terms of um, his accomplishments and whether or not you know he'll stay for another 16 years, um, I think it's unlikely that he'll stay for another 16 years. Um, I'll say that, and I'll say that um, I'm completely prepared to be wrong, partly because of how this constitutional reform has unfolded. So when the constitutional amendments were proposed in January, so obviously none of us really thought that Putin was going to sail into the sunset after this term. Like no one no one thought that realistically. But obviously we also all knew that he was facing this problem of term limits, constitutional term limits. So something had to be done. And then they announced these constitutional reforms in January. And if you remember the speech that he made in January, it was about political renewal, the the demand for reformation, the the for transition, for you know renewal, um, for a rebalancing of power. He was talking about empowering different institutions and then the entire government was sacked or quit right and then there's this whole kind of upheaval and it seemed like we were seeing a real political an, uh, an effort at a real real political change not kind of democratization or liberalization but an effort to reform the system to maybe make it more durable and then when we when it kind of came right down to it he went with the bluntest most kind of obvious ploy to stay in power which is to extend the possibility of being president for 16 more years which again i think very few people expected because he had avoided changing the constitution for such a long time and he he had made statements about not changing the constitution not being in power and because it just seemed so blatantly undemocratic And then everything that's built up after that, you know, the way that the the reform has been implemented, the constitutional amendments, the way that this vote happened, not that they got a positive result, but that this vote isn't based in law. And it was held in the, I, I mean, just in the most illegitimate kind of way possible, right? Like voting outside, voting by, you know, via the internet, all these different kinds of, like, there was no effort made at kind of appearing legitimate. Um, so all of that surprises me it really really does because I think I would have thought they would, would have been way, way more strategic and so um, I'll go back to say that I don't think he's going to stay president for 16 years but again I say that because I think that he is a strategic actor and that it would make sense to transition out of the presidency before he faces this conflict again and also because he's getting older over time, right? And people are not gonna expect him to live to be 100. Um, And I don't think his goal is to die in office. Um, So I don't think he's gonna stay president for 16 years, but I say that because I think he's he's a strategic actor. If he's not a strategic actor, he'll stay in power for another 16 years and then we'll have kind of a very tough transition period. And the last thing I'll say there is, this goes back to your point about Rome. um, So there's all these studies that look at the end of an autocrat's career. And one of the things that we often don't consider, but that studies have shown us, is that autocrats are more often than not replaced by other autocrats. They're not replaced by democratic leaders. So when we talk about political transition in Russia, it is very possible that whoever replaces Putin, whatever system replaces him, won't be a democracy. And so that's something else I think to consider also, right? When we look towards the end of Putin's career, um, that might not be a democratic breakthrough that we're hoping for.
0: And on that optimistic note, I think we've covered uh, all of the bases about the various elements of Putin's popularity. So thank you, Yana, again for joining us. Great to hear your thoughts on the matter.
1: Great, thanks.
0: Thank you, as always, for joining. And as mentioned, stay tuned for part two coming out soon. Be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine on Twitter at the handle at bear market brief. BMB Russia and Ukraine is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit www.fpri.org.